Episode 15. The Story of Carl. Carl Ricker was a hard child. By age two, he'd wrenched his face into the scowl that he would wear every day until his late teens. Small and wiry, he registered primarily as a blur of fists, elbows, and legs. Children who sat next to him in elementary school came home with bruises on their shins and arms. He spat invectives in a voice as deep as a grown man's. A chair was reserved for him in the principal's office, where he invariably arrived every day right after the Pledge of Allegiance. His parents attended weekly conferences with his teachers, but found that they, like the teachers, could do nothing with him. Therapists professed themselves mystified. No matter where Carl was or who he was with, he behaved as if he were locked in a cage. Once, in the middle of a vast, snow-covered plain, he had roared, "'Get me out of here!' As a teenager, he fought and broke windows and held up a dry cleaner at knife point. He was arrested several times, and only his father's enormous wealth and power, he was then the founder and head of Zoomburger, the fast food chain, saved him from the juvenile justice system. One weekend, to clear his mind in order to better focus it on his son, Harry Ricker decided to take up skydiving. He traveled north to the noted drop zone, just outside Paradise, California. On the first morning, his instructor strapped him into a harness in front of his body and bore him safely through the air down to the ground. They did it again, with the instructor literally showing him the ropes. Ricker felt like a baby bird. On the second morning, he made his first solo jump. He stood in the doorway of the plane, feeling freakishly light without the instructor attached to him. A golden field, splotched here and there by black cows and boulders and a few pine trees, spooled out below. He jumped. The plane sailed away. The wind shrieked in his ears as he soared toward Mount Lassen in the distance. The mountain glowed purple and white, the sky bright blue. The earth looked two-dimensional, like a painting. Ricker became terrified. Much later he would understand why. In the sky he had removed himself from the very elements, his home, his work, his wife and son, and the earth itself, that composed him. He had become an abstraction. He pulled the cord sooner than necessary, not to slow his fall, but to feel the presence of a companion, the parachute. The cord resisted. Above him he felt a kind of struggling, but not the thunder and snap of a chute unfurling. He reached around and discovered a horrifying mass like a giant tumor. He pulled at the mass. It moved, but not freely. At that point Ricker's breath left him. His body began to spin like a clay pigeon. His vision narrowed and winked out. He awoke hanging face down in a pine tree with his instructor shouting up at him. Some time later, a paramedic untangled him and carried him down a ladder. He was treated for a concussion and released. The ride to the emergency room had been long, however, and during that time he mentioned his problems with his son to the paramedics. One of them, a brisk, broad-faced woman, told him about a special school in Florida called Program Alpha. The program worked wonders with delinquents, addicts, even borderline psychotics. It had helped the paramedic's daughter immensely. She was now a lawyer in Boston. I think you'll be very pleased, the paramedic said. And so it came to pass that for two years Carl disappeared into the leafy confines of Program Alpha. During that time he was permitted no contact whatsoever with his parents. The program's protocol called for the subject to feel himself drowning in the unfamiliar until, at the last moment, the program threw him a line and pulled up a new person. Released to his parents' care, Carl looked younger than his seventeen years, younger even than when he'd left. His always handsome face had become open and eager. His body had straightened out of its attacking crouch, and his voice lilted with the cadence typical of Program Alpha graduates. He spoke with fascination about the most mundane matters. He offered a pan for his scrambled eggs every morning before polishing them off in methodical gulps. 
His parents hugged him, and for the first time ever, he hugged them back, almost melting into his father's chest. He went for long walks in the San Gabriel Mountains near the family's Pasadena home, taking with him a magnifying glass and books on butterflies and moths. On a Saturday afternoon, two weeks after Carl's return, Ricker watched through the door of his home office as his son passed by, carrying several bags from the hardware store. Even his son's gait had changed, Ricker marveled. He no longer stomped. He seemed almost to glide. Carl went into his bedroom, which was large and unusually generic for a kid his age, for he had had no interests before Program Alpha other than violence. Perhaps, Ricker thought, Carl had at last decided to decorate his room and thereby start revealing the contours of his new personality. He guessed the decor would consist of insect paraphernalia, nets and microscopes, containers with chrysalises in them, posters. The program had been incredible. Before, any bug that had come within twenty feet of Carl got squashed unequivocally. Now Carl observed them meticulously, and such attention, Harry thought, presaged love. Ricker hoped Carl would eventually apply his eye for detail to business and help him run Zoomburger. But Carl remained in a delicate stage. The soil of his psyche had been harrowed, fertilized, and seeded by the program, but it was not yet clear what would take root there. It was important, so the head of the program had explained during the graduation ceremony, that well-meaning parents not blast the green shoots of their children's new lives with a fire hose of anxious suggestion. The children had to find their own future. Ricker set down the proposal he was reading for road warrior tie-ins at Zoomburger. From Carl's room he heard the rustling of bags, followed by the sounds of a device being assembled. A power drill screamed to life. Ricker bent the upper right corner of the page and smoothed it out again. His wife was at work. She herself was a corporate attorney, one reason perhaps that the paramedic's description of the program had sounded so good. It produced future lawyers, and he himself loved a lawyer. He wished Susan were home now, as she would have no qualms about barging into Carl's bedroom. Ricker could then go in under the guise of coaxing Susan out of there. Let's leave Carl alone, honey, he would say, as he gave the scene a good once-over. We've got to give him some space now. Soon enough, the drilling stopped. A chair scraped across the wooden floor. The chair creaked. Ricker did not remember getting up from his desk or running down the hallway. He was simply in Carl's room, grasping him around the thighs and lifting him off the chair. Above them, the empty noose swung from a hook in the ceiling. Ricker yanked the noose down and threw it out the window. He fell on his knees. My God, Carl, what have they done to you? What have we done? Carl blinked at him. Carl, please come back to me. I'll give you anything. I mean it. You can have literally anything. Just please, please go back to the way you were before that goddamn program. At last, a spark flickered in Carl's eyes. He held out his hand and helped his father to his feet. I want, he said, to be a Formula One race car driver. So Ricker sold Zoomburger for a world record profit and moved the family to Monte Carlo, where he set about assembling Team Scimitar. With his billions, he could afford to hire the world's best engineers and designers, not of race cars, but of weaponry. The Scimitar would transform Carl's vengeance against both the program and his parents into an elegant assault on Europe. While Carl took driving lessons from a French former champion, the frightening black skeleton of his car began to take shape. The scimitar's secret lay in the revolutionary material that composed its chassis. Developed by a Soviet defector now living in Switzerland, scimitarium, as it came to be called, was light, strong, and flexible beyond belief. The car became more aerodynamic the faster it went. Combined with cutting-edge telemetry and a supremely powerful engine, scimitarium made the car so responsive as to be telepathic. Despite his training and intermittent practice on the junior circuit, however, 
Carl could handle neither the competitive level of F1 nor the scimitar. He soon acquired the nickname Le Crash. He destroyed million-dollar cars on a bi-monthly basis. Fortunately, Carl was a natural-born escape artist. Time and again, Le Crash freed himself unscathed from the twisted and always burning chassis. For all its wonders, Scimitarium proved exceedingly flammable, producing aurora-like ribbons of color as it vaporized. This spectacle brought a host of new fans to F1, as thetes of a sort. Carl's escapes assuaged their consciences, but it could not be denied that what these fans craved was the vision of human and machine engulfed together in flame. Susan delivered an ultimatum. The racing must stop. All Ricker had to do was pull the financial plug. No other team would let Carl near a race car. But Ricker did not dare even criticize Carl's driving, let alone put an end to it. He would rather Carl die than revert to the robot that Program Alpha had made him. On the day Susan filed for divorce, he told Carl he saw real improvement. But as he crossed the border into his 20s, Carl actually did get better. His affinities for his car and his craft blossomed together. His attraction to detail finally found a productive outlet. He walked the track repeatedly before races, falling to his hands and knees to apply his magnifying glass to the asphalt. His preparation was not complete until he could sit in the cockpit and feel every bump and turn of the course unfolding inside him. At that point, the actual races became exercises and deja vu. The scimitar sprang into the lead on the first lap and never let go. Carl's nickname became Le Missile. How did it happen? Perhaps it was the series of encounters with death mapped onto the receptive strata of his post-program alpha brain. That was what his father believed in the end. Though brutal, the program had not been completely detrimental. It prepared the mind to take full advantage of experience. Carl was not just the likely F1 champion of 1983. Along the way, he had grown into a humble, witty, intelligent, and fine young man. He was more than his father could have hoped for. More important, he was happy. At the San Marino Grand Prix, Carl started in the pole position, his accustomed spot by now. As he pulled into place after the parade lap, though, he didn't feel what he usually felt at this moment, the calm, the oneness with the car as it revved up. He felt he was somewhere very odd. The seconds stretched into hours as he watched for the start signal. The crowd became a sea of colored lights, the engine noise distant birdsong. He saw a hand waving in his face, and he understood that this hand was a flame. It was too late for the Houdini act. Carl took one last look around him as the lights and colors blended into the aurora. He waved goodbye.